Welcome. Many, many years ago, I recall seeing for the first time the movie Dead Man Walking. Based on the nonfiction book by Sister Helen Prejean, the movie stars Susan Sarandon as a fictionalized version of Sister Helen. And in that movie, Sean, Plen Sean Penn plays a young man on death row for rape and murder. I remember my initial reaction to that movie was extremely negative. I thought, why am I being asked to sympathize with this young man who there was no question about his guilt. He and his buddies clearly did rape this young girl. They murdered her and her boyfriend. And I thought, you know, just let the son of a bitch fry. Why am I being asked to care about the fact that he's on death row and that he's suffering and all of that? So that was a long time ago. Fast forward to uh, 2016 or 17. That year, Vancouver and Opera announced that they were going to do the operatic version of the story Dead Man Walking by noted American opera composer Jake Hegge. And I was asked to give a series of lectures on the opera. So as I always do, I did a lot of research. I actually went and read Sister Helen's book. And I saw a whole bunch of interviews with her, with, with Bill Maher and other people. And I rewatched the movie. It was interesting. My experience on seeing the movie the second time, especially after having read the book, was altogether quite different. I still hated the central character. I still didn't sympathize with him at all, although I felt a little more sympathy for his family, his mother and his brothers. And I understood a little bit better some of the some of the different arguments for and against capital punishment. And we'd like to today take some of these arguments apart and discuss them and compare. So of course the book Dead Man Walking is written from a Christian perspective. It's by a nun after all. So she's coming from the she argues against against the death penalty on moral grounds, on the grounds that, for example, all life has intrinsic value, regardless of a person's choices and actions. Uh, there are some other developments, but I'd actually, I'd actually like to begin today with one of her most unusual arguments in the book. A case that's often made by people who are in favor of capital punishment is why do we keep these scumbags alive? Why do we waste taxpayers' money to keep murderers and rapists alive for life? Wouldn't it be much cheaper just to throw them in the chair and flip the switch and you know save taxpayers thousands and thousands of dollars? And Sister Helen actually re responds to that argument in her book, and she says, no, that in fact, it to keep a man alive, a prisoner alive for life, it costs you know, somewhere in the low six figures, somewhere in the low hundreds of thousands of dollars. But to actually execute a man, when you take into account all the legal costs and the whole appeals process, it actually costs close to a million dollars or in some cases more. Easily. Yeah. And so too. So I'd like to uh, begin with. And now I, I don't. It's been some years since I read the book, so I don't recall what studies she cites or what facts she gives. So I have to call here on a higher power. And by higher power, I mean the great legal mind of my co-host, Mr. James Valiant. So, James, in, in purely monetary terms, executing a man versus keeping a man alive for life, what are, are there any merits to Sister Helen's argument here? Well, for a long time, of course, in the uh, uh, Anglosphere, in the English-speaking world, the death penalty was widely used. It was used for thieves. They would hang thieves. Uh, and uh, as the centuries have gone on, the death penalty has been restricted to crimes that are more proportionate, uh, such as murder, let's say. Um, and um, in uh, America, in, 19, in the early 1970s, uh, the United States Supreme Court held the death penalty to be unconstitutional. 
but then it reversed itself a few years later, but has imposed several requirements. Those legal requirements require careful appeals, a long and extensive appeal process in order simply for the death penalty verdict to be upheld, much less for the execution to actually take place. So the cost, there's no question about it. Given the current, given the current legal requirements to uh, execute someone in the United States. The United States is one of the few countries, uh, developed countries that still has a death penalty on the books. I think Japan and Singapore are among them, but the United States does as well. Now, in most of America's states, it, they don't have an effective death penalty. In 20 some states, there's it's unlawful to do the death penalty. Several other states have suspended the, the death penalty. Um, and so in a majority of states, effectively, there is no death penalty. And depending on the administration, uh, we currently have a Democrat administration, so they have a, a de facto suspension on federal use of uh, de the death penalty. So it's a very complex legal issue. And yeah, supporting someone in prison for the rest of their life is in fact cheaper. But I don't think those kind of arguments should decide the matter. That's not the kind of issue that really should decide this. Uh, no question under the current complexities of getting the death penalty in the United States, which are Byzantine and complex, the costs are clearly on the one side, as you say, but how it should be decided on the matter of human lives. What we're talking about is murder on the one hand and executing the guy on the other. I do not think money should be the consideration here when we're talking about human lives. Uh, so uh, that I think is a particularly poor argument to make. Uh, I think it really should come down to uh, the philosophy of law. And this is where the philosophy of law really needs to govern us. There's a distinction, and objectivists are well aware of the distinction between ethics, morality, and the concerns of morality and the standards by which we say something is wrong or right objectively versus legality and illegality. Yes, it's a subset of morality, but it is a narrow subset of morality, law. And uh, the applications of that have to take into account that it's the government that is doing this. And the government needs to prove its case, and are we certain? So on the one hand, if you were to ask me, if someone does a horrific murder, let's take Charles Manson and the notorious Manson family murders in Los Angeles uh, back from 50 years ago, there was serial killers who tortured totally innocent, randomly picked victims, including a pregnant uh, woman, Sharon Tate, an actress, and I mean tortured them. Horrific murders. They were convicted. Uh, Charles Manson was convicted and he was uh, given the death penalty. Um, in that case, if you were to ask me, does Charles Manson and do all those people who did those murders with Charles Manson deserve to die morally? Absolutely. The moral question is cut and dry. They have earned death. And forget any other consideration. Forget any other consideration. As an objectivist, we understand that when you violate the rights of another person, if you intentionally initiate force against someone, you have, to that extent, surrendered your own rights, your own rights. And to the extent you violate someone's rights, you surrender your rights. And so in one sense, walking in the door, you'd think if you intentionally, deliberately kill someone, you've surrendered your own right to life. And in, indeed, in one level, morally speaking, that's a clear-cut uh, answer in my view. Now, on the other hand, let's consider, say, if someone tortures someone, 
injustice does the person in response have a right to torture them back? The proportionate punishment would be torture. But I would ask you, would you trust a government to torture? Can torture be proportionate? Does one person's experience of pain, is that the same as another person's experience of pain? Well, you can do the same thing. It's, it's interesting that, with death. that would you, yeah, would you trust the government? Because this is actually another another argument that Sister Helen Prejean brings up in her book. And she says, do you trust a government that can't even be relied upon to collect taxes in a fair, equitable manner? Can you really trust them to have power over life and death? And why I think why the why capital punishment is really such an incendiary issue is because it's final and irreversible. And of course, there have been there have been many cases. There have been thousands of cases of people being wrongly executed. And you know, you, you can imprison a man, and if you find out that he's been wrongly imprisoned, you release him. But if a man, if an innocent man has been executed, you can't say, "Oops, well, we screwed that one up. Can we get a redo on that?" No, because death is final. It's final and it's irreversible. That's exactly it. So whatever our moral position on what the person, quote, deserves, we have to take into account that this is the government doing it, and human beings are not infallible. Now, it is true that to get any criminal conviction in the English-speaking world, you need to prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. The evidence has to be so powerful, they have to have reasonable certainty to, conv to convict the person. If you have a doubt, Nicholas, if the prosecution has put on enough evidence to make you think, no, they probably did it. No, this is the guy that probably committed the crime. But you have a doubt based in the evidence, a non-arbitrary doubt. You vote not guilty. Even if you think he's probably guilty, you vote not guilty, as the judge instructs you, because there's a doubt. This is true for any criminal case. When it comes to uh, capital cases, there's an additional level. In America, we have a, a shadow of a doubt standard. There can't be any remote doubt in your mind before you, the jury says death penalty. So we have the prosecution has the burden of proof. It's a high level of proof. Judges are reviewing this. Uh, if there is a, 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 a capital sentence, death penalty, there are automatic appeals built into this. Now, since the death penalty was reinstated by the Supreme Court of the United States, they've, they've put on all kinds of restrictions, which have added to this expensive, uh, the legal expenses of going through the procedure of uh, executing someone. Uh, minors cannot be executed. People who have mental, uh, you know, developmental issues mentally cannot be executed. They're very, there has to be a specific and truly aggravating factor to the murder. But, uh, you know, there are all kinds of board, and since the death penalty was reinstated uh, almost 50 years ago now by the Supreme Court, there have been nearly 2,000 people executed in the United States. None of them has been exonerated. There have been a number of people who were found guilty and given the death penalty as a sentence, but before their execution, they found the exoneration. And in that case, the exoneration might only be reasonable doubt. The person might still have probably killed the person, let's say, but there was a reasonable doubt and therefore that was enough to exonerate them. Because remember, not guilty does not mean factually innocent. It simply means that the prosecution hasn't proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury. So I need DNA, I need, but imagine, but imagine if you will, a live camera catches a person committing murder and we have the live camera. So let's say we have three different angles on it from three different sources of cameras so that they're different people taking the pictures. Someone's on a cell phone over here. There's a, there's a, a store camera over here. Let's say that the person is caught by the cops in the act with the smoking gun 
after the cameras. Let's say they bring him in and he confesses on tape in front of 100 people. He says, yes, I did it. I hated the guy. I wanted to kill him. I bought the gun. I went and I shot him. We have a taped confession, a confession in front of hundreds of witnesses. We have three different camera angles that absolutely prove he commits it. Um, Under those circumstances, would you say that the person should be given the death penalty? There's no doubt we, we, well, then someone could come along and say, well, wait a minute, each one of those cameras, although from an independent source, didn't, and the confession was designed because the guy was crazy. He didn't know what he was saying. It turns out he had a twin brother who was there at the scene who looked just like him, and he was confessing to his brother. There are, you can always create a science fiction scenario. Now, I know I'm speculating there. I know I'm involving all kinds of arbitrary possibilities in that, but but the question is, can we be absolutely forever certain in any or every case, uh, even of an aggravated murder? I mean, recently there was this guy who escaped from prison in Pennsylvania. He was a vicious killer. He killed his girlfriend horribly. He escaped from prison and he was armed and dangerous. He could well have, what if he had shot a police officer while escaped from prison, already being convicted of a murder, uh, uh, and here we catch him say, in the act of shooting a police officer in the attempt to escape, should he be given the death penalty? Wow, there are cases where I can bring you, with the evidence of strong, strong evidence, and with a really aggravated murder, uh, murderer, I could make it very, very tempting on the one hand. Uh, for you to say, yeah, there's the only only thing to do is to injustice kill him. And the question is justice. It's not a question of sending a message. It's not a question of uh, all these other uh, theories about, no, no, no. The man has earned death. The question is, have we proved it with such certainty? And thank goodness that none of the people actually executed in America since the death penalty was reinstated almost 50 years ago, has been exonerated after the execution. Were that to happen just once, think about it, just one innocent man being executed wrongly for a murder, it would seem to me that would vitiate the entire system. That's the kind of uh, extreme case here. I can understand where reasonable minds might differ. But it would have to be at these extreme end cases where the evidence is so overwhelming and the crime was so aggravated uh, that legally speaking, it would be justified. But I ask you to think about it. Are humans infallible? Is it possible that some kind of evidence could come up? And how many wrongful executions are morally permissible? I say none. So. I, uh, my own view. Was it, was it uh, Lord Blackstone who famously said that better for 10 guilty men to go free than for one innocent man to be imprisoned? A famous, I think that's really the sentiment here. Yes, indeed. And it's a famous dictum in the English American legal uh, system. That's our attitude. The attitude uh, uh, in the Anglo-American legal system is we'd much prefer guilty people to get away with it. And 10 times the number of guilty people getting away with it than for one innocent person to be wrongly convicted. And you know something, if I put you in jail, even for 10 years wrongly, at least there's some way, if it turns out that the government was wrong, we can do something to compensate you. As you pointed out earlier, the finality of the death penalty makes it impossible to go back and even attempt to make any kind of restitution or make this good. Um, And it is 
there's no way of responding to it in justice. The government will have done then an injustice, a horrific injustice for which there can be no even theoretical compensation. So I have to say to you, as in my opinion, I am generally speaking opposed to the death penalty on principle. I'm open to arguments. I'm open to arguments on a specific case where it's really super overwhelming in the evidence and it's really, really aggravated in the in the crime. But it would have to reach that level for me to be satisfied. And it would involve far fewer, even under the current American system, far fewer executions and death penalty uh, verdicts than we currently have. So I'm yeah. generally well, opposed to it as a legal penalty. If yeah, that and that brings us to uh, that brings us to Ayn Rand's own view of capital punishment. So she said she was not opposed to capital punishment on moral grounds because, as you've already pointed out, a person who initiates force commits violence against another person, thereby forfeits their own rights. She said specifically that she was opposed to capital punishment on epistemological grounds, and that's really what we're talking about here. That in the case of something which is so final and so definitive, uh, the, the standards of certainty have to be so high. Uh, you Look, as objectivists, we know human beings are not infallible. Even a system which requires uh, uh, evidence, real evidence, and goes only by logic and the evidence, and has juries and judges reviewing it and reviewing it and reviewing it, can all those people still be fallible? Yes, human beings are fallible. We can make mistakes. Things that look obvious can, in another context, suddenly look entirely different. And that guy who made the confession was really taking the rap for his twin brother. <laughs> I hate to use that kind of weird example, but what if it was his twin we got on film doing the crime? What if it's his twin brother trying to take the rap for him or was just crazy in admitting the crime? Um, all of those possibilities, if we're going to execute someone, have to be eliminated. Now, think about that logically. Eliminate, proving a negative is what, in effect, we have to do. We have to prove it with such certainty that any alternative is impossible. Now, is that in certain situations practically uh, doable? Yeah, but it's so rare. It is such a rare phenomenon where you have all this evidence that makes it absolutely certain. Uh, and that's why we have this beyond a shadow of a doubt standard when in America when it comes to the death penalty as, a, as opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt standard when it comes to all other criminal convictions. Right. Now, speaking of Rand's view of capital punishment, in, in doing research on that specific topic, two of the top Google searches that came up were, or Google search results that came up were a pair of articles from the Atlas Society. I want to get your, your take on this. Each one taking a seemingly opposite position from the other one. One of the articles, which was from, say, two decades ago, was very pro-capital punishment, saying, yes, justice demands it, morality demands it, that murderers be executed. The other article, which was written maybe a little more recently, say a decade ago, was essentially quoting and explaining Rand's own position that for on epistemological grounds, uh, it's it's highly dubious. And I just find it very interesting that an organization would put out two articles on the exact same topic, but from slightly different perspectives. Now, of course, as objectivists, we do often disagree on certain concretes. But what do you, what do you make of this 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 sort of strange disconnect between the the ideas behind the? They were they were by two different authors, of course. I think it's as I say. I think it is a debatable issue and one that objectivism proper doesn't have an answer to. That is to say, Ayn Rand did not have a fully developed philosophy of law. 
And for that, you'd need obviously highly specialized knowledge in the law uh, that I'm trying to bring a little bit to bear here uh, uh, so that people get a, an idea of the parameters, uh, the epistemological parameters that Ayn Rand is talking about. But clearly the first article in ignoring the epistemological aspects, uh, the reasons that caused Ayn Rand to regard a death penalty uh, uh, with such uh, dubiousness, uh, with such a grain of salt, uh, uh, have to be taken into account. You really have to take into account, there are a lot of libertarians out there, take the late Murray Rothbard. He thought that if you cause someone to lose an arm, say, you thereby had the right to take that person's arm, cut that person's arm off. Well, that sounds pretty biblical to me. <laughs> well, to, for him, a, a, series, a, a set of proportionate, uh, true proportionate justice would mean I get to cut off your arm if you cause me to lose my arm. And we can negotiate a settlement, says Murray Rothbard. I, 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 I don't think we, need, we should go around cutting people's arms off, torturing people because they were tortured. There's no, that isn't proportionate. Your arm is not my arm. Your experience of pain is not my experience of pain. That's all quite subjective, in fact, rather than being the objective thing that a lot of libertarians think it is. And so I think the first article probably reflects this nutty libertarian view that some take, like Murray Rothbard, you kill me, I have a right to kill you, even six months later. Uh, <laughs> now that's, it seems to me, uh, asking for anarchy and gang warfare. Um, no, the government has to be the monopoly doing this. And sometimes the government can't give what you and I would think would be the fully. I mean, even say I say, put you in jail for six months for some aggravated theft case. Is that going to be the same six months for every six months that every person gets for a theft? No, we can't really do it in terms of this. This is the punishment that precisely matched that. The most we can do is say crimes of this category get uh, the same kind of treatment, and this is the appropriate kind of treatment. Uh, it, it, you're never going to have justice in that sense if you want to inflict every little ounce of pain that the criminal wanted to inflict. It can't be done. It can't be done. However, on the other hand, they forfeited their rights and they require punishment, a punishment to the degree that it is appropriate to the crime and uh, uniform across similar instances. I want to briefly go back to something you said at the beginning of this discussion. So you mentioned that uh, nowadays capital punishment is used in certain particular kinds of murder cases. I'm wondering if you've ever seen a movie, I think the movie was from the 1970s, it was called The Execution of Private Slovik. It starred Martin Sheen as, uh, so the story behind it, it was, it was a true story. I think his name was Eddie Slovig or something. He was, I think he was the last American citizen to be executed for treason. He was drafted into the Second World War. You know, he had to go overseas and he deserted. He, he didn't want to fight. He didn't want, he didn't want to fight the Germans. So he deserted the army and eventually he was captured. And I think he was executed by firing squad. And right. I think that was the last such case in the United States. So this was a case of an execution for, for treason, for desertion specifically. Right. Now, that's outrageous to me. That is simply outrageous. To me. I don't think there should be a military conscription at all. Forcing people to fight in, in an army is just wrong. And if he's AWOL from that, uh, then my sympathies are with him. To Now, if it is cowardice on the battlefield, so I think that there are different rules that apply to battlefield stuff. Uh, because there you're putting other people in danger, right? You're putting yeah, other... Yeah, and in a situation where the bullets are already flying, 
Um, yeah. And when you're in that kind of a situation and someone is, say, turning their gun against their own people, you can shoot him. And it seems to me there, there could be situations, a lot, all kinds of situations where it's appropriate. Now, on the other hand, execution by firing squad, uh, well, that has been found unconstitutional. Uh, that, I think he was the last guy executed by firing squad. You can't do public hangings, says the United States Supreme Court. You can't do uh, uh, firing squads anymore. Certain forms of execution have been regarded as cruel and unusual, and those have been put to bed. Um, as I say, there are all kinds of other rules, too. There has to be a specific and truly aggravating uh, factual instance. The evidence level has to be high. It can't be people who have uh, developmental mental issues or uh, minors and so forth and so on. So it's become so restricted uh, in America that it happens quite uh, rarely. And even over the last 40, 50 years where we've had a death penalty, uh, as I say, fewer than 2,000 people have been executed, but approaching 2,000 people have been executed so far None of them have been exonerated post-death, thank goodness. But that sure seems to me to be a lot of executions where we're, what if one day, one of them, how many of those need to turn out to be a, a, a false conviction before we yeah. say, no, 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 we have to eliminate most of this. One is too many. So I see, I see we have just a few minutes left. So let's uh, check in with Daniel and see if we have any super chats from our viewers. We have a super chat from Robert. Thank you so much. He says, James Valiant, truly a higher power. <laughs> we have, Thank we have you. a super sticker from Jonathan. Thank you so much. And a super chat from Wes. Thank you so much. He says, random comment. James, I've been enjoying your discussions about the history of Christianity on other channels. Keep it up. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Awesome. Uh, one other question that occurred to me, speaking of execution for treason, wasn't there also a case, I can't remember exactly what decade it was, but there was that couple that was executed for spying. Oh, the Rosenbergs. Rosenberg, Rosenberg, yeah. Yes. Well, they were accused, of, well, <laughs> uh, Mr. Rosenberg was working for the United States Army, and he was one of those who uh, probably supplied the Soviet Union with the secret for the nuclear bomb back in the late 1940s. Yeah. Now, I think that we found another uh, person who is also working for the United States Army, who was their primary source. But I think the evidence is pretty sound that uh, folks working for the United States Army uh, were also working for the Soviet Union and delivering them information on the nuclear bomb. Would you think uh, just do you think capital punishment would be justified in a case like that? Mm. Boy, see, see but no one has died yet they gave the bomb now it's a threat that they put the the entire western world for the next 50 years is living under the threat of soviet nuclear missiles down there aimed right at their face and so the western world is now facing the threat of mass annihilation now think about that uh, still, on the other hand, there were doubts. There were people, mostly I think wrong, but there were people who rushed to the defense of the Rosenbergs and said they were wrongly accused. If that's the case, if they had evidence that that was the case, then think about it. We have just executed totally innocent people who didn't threaten the lives of millions. Um, I, I, I think they did. I don't think since anyone actually died, it should have been uh, the death penalty. That's my view on the death penalty. Yeah. Uh, no one's died, even if it was a military secret like that. On the other hand, what a horrific thing they did do. What a horrific thing they did do. Uh, yeah, that's the tension here. 
I mean, sometimes you've got the most egregious things like the Manson murders, torturing some pregnant woman in their serial, their mass slaughter, serial killing rampage. Interestingly, Manson was given the death penalty. It was right after that the U.S. Supreme Court declared the death penalty unconstitutional. And so his sentence was reduced to life. The Supreme Court again reverses itself, says, okay, under certain circumstances, the death penalty is okay, but there's Charles Manson rotting in prison for the next 50, 60 years, precisely because uh, the, uh, he came in that window uh, where the death penalty was unconstitutional and they can't go back and change the sentence back up once they've reduced it. There are all kinds of cases where you were just morally outraged at what happens. But on the other hand, I have to bear in, we have to bear in mind just one, just one wrong execution. And that would, I mean, how would we approach that? It seems to me intolerable, intolerable to allow even one. And I think that's a, that's a good note to end on. Daniel, do we have any announcements for other shows today? In about one minute, we have the reality show coming up. That's at 6 p.m. UK time. But like I said, in one minute, link is in the chat and we'll see everyone there. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you very much, James, for sharing your historical and legal insights. And I look forward to chatting with you again in a few days. And to all our viewers and supporters, I wish you the best of premises.